Good evening, and thank you for joining us this evening for this evening's lecture given by the Professor of Poetry at the University of Oxford, Alice Oswald. My name is Wes Williams, and I'm the Director of TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. TORCH is delighted to be able to be collaborating with the English faculty in hosting this evening's lecture as part of our live event series, itself part of the Humanities Cultural Programme, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities. Alice has kindly agreed to take questions from the audience tonight, so if you do have any questions, please pop them in the YouTube chat below, and we'll do our very best to answer as many as we can at the end of the discussion. It's now my great pleasure to welcome, first of all, Professor Ros Ballister to tell us more about the lecture this evening, and it's Ros who will be chairing the discussion uh, as well as the lecture. Ros Ballister is Professor of 18th Century Studies, Tutorial Fellow at Mansfield College, and the Chair of the English Faculty Board. She's published widely on the novel and on women's writing in the 18th century, and is currently writing a book about the role of theater in the invention of the novel. Ros, thank you so much for the Professor of Poetry lecture. Uh, and thank you for being with us this evening. And without further ado, I'd like to hand over to you and disappear from the screens now. Thank you. Thanks very much, Wes. Um, so I'm delighted to introduce Professor Alice Oswald. Um, Alice is the 46th Professor of Poetry at the University of Oxford since the post was founded in 1708. The list and line of her publications is long and distinguished, from the Thing in the Gapstone style of 1996, which received a Forward Poetry Prize for Best First Collection, through Dart to Woods, etc., Weeds and Wildflowers, A Sleepwalk on the Seven, Memorial, Falling Awake, Nobody, and A Short Story of Falling. Her most recent publication of 29th of October from Jonathan Cape is Gigantic Cinema, a weather anthology co-edited with Paul Keegan. Characteristically, the anthology challenges the conventional form of the anthology, charting a temporal line as its poets and poems from all different worlds and periods scan the skies and the earth in response to changing and changeable weather. We too are traveling with Alice Oswald along a temporal and geospatial line. The Professor of Poetry gives a public lecture each term. This is Alice Oswald's third public lecture and her second delivered through virtual means and zoomed into your homes. As those of you who attended her last talk will remember, there's actually nothing virtual about the experience we have as listeners. Alice's lectures take us on visceral sound journeys with her voice, the voices of other poets and the sounds of the natural and the unnatural world. They make us hear what we've forgotten to hear. And she could have chosen no more appropriate poetry to discuss today in that regard. The poetry she's in conversation with today is that of Ted Hughes. It's 50 years since the publication of From the Life and Songs of Crow. Alice Oswald has described elsewhere her sense of finding in Hughes's poetic lines what she calls a compulsory inner music, out with the presence of rhyme and metre. And others have recognised her affinity with Hughes. Alice Oswald was a recipient of the inaugural Ted Hughes Award founded by Caroline Duffy for new work in poetry for her collection Weeds and Wildflowers published in 2009. Duffy commented then that 
Alice Oswald of all poets working today is possibly the most like Hughes. I know Alice herself will have much more to tell us about this relationship and its lineage for her in her lecture today. So I am very pleased to hand over to Professor Alice Oswald for her lecture on lines. Thank you very much, Ros. And hello to everybody. Lines. It is hard to deliver a poetry lecture. A poem, at least the kind of poem I like, is not an opinion. A poem is a way of speaking into silence to see what speaks back. Often what speaks back is contradictory and even stupefying, but a true poem won't flinch at that. A true poem gives up its knowingness at the end of each line, inhales, listens, and then starts again. A lecture, on the other hand, ought to know what it thinks. A lecture should convey what it thinkingly knows without being stupefied or contradicted. I should like to deliver that kind of lecture, but I need to warn you that because of my long training in the art of not knowing, there will be some sharp turns and contradictions. And I'm just trying to scroll down. This is the first sharp turn and contradiction. I should like to speak about contemporary poetry, and by contemporary, I mean something right now unmistakably alive. As I cast about for something light-sensitive, love-sensitive, strongly self-expressive and self-renewing, but also piercing and fragmentary and baffled, the first example I can think of is the blackbird. Some people prefer the great tit, who speaks a binary iambic language, adding one thought cell to another, but I prefer the bird who speaks in lines. I'm told by Bachelard that the blackbird learnt its song from running water, and I can see the similarity. But water, when you sleep listening to it, water goes on and on beyond even the great tit, without obvious intervals or endings. Whereas what I love about the blackbird is this. In Stevie Wishart's slowed down version, picked out on a guitar, you hear the simple beauty of blackbird grammar. One quick statement pursued to the point of amazement, then a silence, just that. Then it speaks again, a slightly different statement, pursued to the point of amazement, then a silence, then again. It is lovely to stand near a tree in the evening and hear that halting way of speaking setting its small system of statements against a vast system of intervals. Phrases outlined by pauses. That is what I call poetry. Each new phrase fits itself to each new moment. That is what I call contemporary. I'm going to speak today about that kind of contemporary poetry. And my focus is a book still unmistakably alive even though it was originally published 50 years ago, from the life and songs of the crow by Ted Hughes. He called it his folk epic, a dark, light, rude, magical, unfinished poem written to accompany the drawings of Leonard Baskin, which you should be able to see. 
it might seem perverse to speak about crows in terms of blackbirds, but when I first encountered that book, I was looking for something that would match the structure of blackbird song, and I fell in love with Crow and the Birds, a poem made beautifully, even blackbirdly of lines. Although, of course, the tune of its thought pattern is pure crow. Crow and the Birds. When the eagle soared clear through a dawn distilling of emerald, when the curlew trawled in sea dusk through a chime of wine glasses, when the swallow swooped through a woman's song in a cavern and the swift flicked through the breath of the violet, when the owl sailed clear of tomorrow's conscience and the sparrow preened himself of yesterday's promise and the heron labored clear of the bessemer upflare and the blue tit zipped clear of lace panties and the woodpecker drummed clear of the rotavator and the rose farm, and the peewit tumbled clear of the laundromat, while the bullfinch plumped in the apple bud, and the goldfinch bulbed in the sun, and the wryneck crooked in the moon, and the dipper peered from the dew ball. Crow spraddled head down in the beach garbage, guzzling the dropped ice cream. Syntax is as direct as a crow flies. The tone is as barefaced. There are no words, Hughes said, no words to capture the infinite depth of crowiness in the crow's flight, the ominous thing in the crow's flight, the barefaced bandit thing, the tattered, beggarly, gypsy thing, the caressing and shaping and yet slightly clumsy gesture of the downstroke, as if the wings were both too heavy and too powerful and the headlong sort of merriment, the macabre pantomime ghoulishness and the undertaker sleepness. Hughes took on that gesture, put on that mask, as you can see from this photo. He combined the inward mythological crow and the outward untidy bird into a new kind of poetry, and he did so by means of melody. The melody controlled the selection of words, he said. The special function of the melody is the only law to the language of crow. The special function of the melody is the only law to the language of crow. Tattered, clumsy, powerful, macabre, there are plenty of ways to describe the crow melody. But its defining quality, as far as I'm concerned, is lineation. It is a tune of lines, a tune of chunk thoughts, a checklist tune of direct transitive phrases, as in Crow and the Birds, with its heap of scavenged lines, each line a musical shift, each shift a new bird, and each bird, as Hopkins might say, sells, goes itself, until the last line hits that bass, brutish note, Crow spraddled head down in the beach garbage, guzzling a dropped ice cream, which arrives beyond the thought frame, like the 15th line of a sonnet. That is, by and large, the melody of all the Crow poems. Poems which just seem to add up and add up. Poems which seem to grow like ferns or footprints in repeating patterns. They come in lists, in rows, in bursts, in shifts. The compositional unit is the line, and the last line generally whips you in the face. 
If you compare Milton's list of birds in Paradise Lost, you can hear the difference between a melody that organizes its impressions and one that reflects them. Hughes's birds lend their flight to the syntax, which listens and sends it back. Milton's birds float on his voice over the line ends and cannot land until the grammar has blown itself out. There the eagle and the stork on cliffs and cedar tops their airies build. Part loosely wing the region, part more wise in common ranged in figure, wedge their way intelligent of seasons and set forth their airy caravan, high over seeds flying and over lands with mutual wing easing their flight. So steers the prudent crane her annual voyage borne on winds. The air floats as they pass, fanned with unnumbered plumes. From branch to branch, the smaller birds with song solace the woods and spread their painted wings till even, nor then the solemn nightingale ceased warbling, but all night tuned her soft blade. Milton, blind, regicidal poet, throwing long sentences across confusion. I have to be careful here. I have described Milton's syntax as a way of ordering his impressions, but how can anyone know what Milton saw inside his darkness? Milton is one of those poets for whom thought was a perceived actuality. He saw the movement of justice as someone else might see the movement of the wind or the hours. Nevertheless, the effect of his runover lines is that every cause is either mid-rhythm or mid-sentence. To read Milton is to be caught into continuity. It is what Hughes elsewhere called either the carrier wave or the great plastic megaphone mask of English. By the time of writing the Crow poems, Hughes had replaced the megaphone, the Crow mask, but in his earlier collections, in some of his loveliest, most conflicted poems, he was still struggling to rid himself of that thinking tone of voice. Desires a vicious separator in spite of its twisting women around men. Cold chisels to self's single as it welds hot iron of their separates to one. Old Eden commonplace, something magnets and furnaces and with fierce hammer blows, the one body on the other knits till the division disappears. But desire outstrips those hands that are nothing filled. It dives into the opposite eyes, plummets through blackouts of impartables for the star that lights the face. Each body still straining to follow down the maelstrom dark of the other, their limbs flail flesh and beat upon the inane everywhere of its obstacle. Each, each second, lonelier and further, falling alone through the endless without world of the other, though both here twist so close, they choke their cries. We've been taught to call Hughes a poet of violence and nature man, but it's worth noticing here what a sensitivity he has for complex syntax. The sentences in this poem bend and weld the line ends. 
There are thoughts thrown from one side of the page to the other, so that the whole piece is interned, pooped, and keystoned into a breath cathedral. Hughes trained his sentences under the prose of Jonathan Swift. He used to set his students the task of copying out a sentence of Swift with their own ideas substituted. He spoke of his wish to learn the whole of Swift by heart. I love that fact. It reminds me of Fanaloza's observation that the sentence form was forced upon man by nature itself. If Hughes is a nature poet, that is partly to do with his sharp hearing of grammar. Although his later style is made of separate, insubordinate clauses, he never lost sight of the tiny supports and movements that make up the ecology of language. Please keep this in mind. Hughes composed his tunes out of the varying pictures of English syntax. That is what is distinctive about his so-called free verse. Whereas most free verse poets use line breaks to undermine the grammar tune, Hughes sings emphatically in phrases. His grammar is his melody, and therefore his musical silence is also a semantic silence. More of this later. Hughes's first book, Hawk in the Rain, was well received by almost everyone except Hughes himself, who was immediately dissatisfied as if his voice had proved inadequate to his vision. His voice had made a lyric world, closed and fixed, but his vision was of something more alive and open. As he later summed it up, describing his first two collections, I had made a language only by locating it in its lifeless or comatose, anaesthetized obedience. Hughes adopted multiple strategies to grow the poems on. He invented two characters with different voices. He experimented with short stories and short plays. And here and there, he began to try out a kind of diary poem in which he could rapidly versify any experience simply by allowing a new line for each new impression. In his second collection, partly inspired by that diary style, Hughes caught the sound he wanted and he recognized the breakthrough instantly. I sit in the top of the wood, my eyes closed, inaction, no falsifying dream between my hooked head and hooked feet, or in sleep, rehearse perfect kills and eat. The convenience of the high trees, the air's buoyancy and the sun's ray are of advantage to me and the earth's face upward for my inspection. My feet are locked upon the rough bark. It took the whole of creation to produce my foot, my each feather. Now I hold creation in my foot. All fly up and revolve it all slowly. I kill where I please because it is all mine. There is no sophistry in my body. My manners are tearing off heads, the allotment of death. But the one path of my flight is direct through the bones of the living. No arguments assert my right. The sun is behind me. Nothing has changed since I began. My eye has permitted no change. I am gonna keep things like this. Hughes described writing that poem as a most intense pleasure. His aim, 
as he expressed it several years later, was to achieve the greatest possible musical shift between inflection. And in achieving it, he felt he had broken a sound barrier. What an image, as if the pace of his voice had been outstripped, as if his mouth barrier had lifted and let something out or in. To attribute hawk roosting with all its savagery and perspective to a new understanding of the line might seem overly technical, but poems enter and alter the imagination by these simple sonic means. I have noticed myself, if I write in rhyming couplets and take a break and go for a walk, the world arranges itself into matching pairs. I find myself looking at symmetrical seeds, trees with their shadows, to and fro bird calls, side-by-side -side footprints. If I'm using 6-8 sonnet form, the world seems full of interwoven patterns. I'm more driven to observe flowers when writing formal verse. I encounter more surprise, more movement when I'm writing free verse. When free verse opposes its melody by speaking over the line ends, then I seem to move around inside a warm woolen voice that lets no draft in. But if I write in lines, and in fact, I frequently start a poem by copying out this line drawing exercise of Paul Clay, then I begin to notice the active intervals between things. It's as if the world is arranged into propositions which abruptly stop, and each time they stop, the cold gets into the mind. The structure of hawk roosting, whose lines follow draftily after each other, and whose pauses are true pauses which keep remaking the tune. As far as I can see, that structure turned Hughes from a lyric or inflected vision to an epic or exflected one. It is in effect the prologue poem to his folk epic, Pro. What you said about closed and open universe, this is Hughes writing a letter in 1968. What you said about closed and open universe was as shrewd and penetrating a remark as I shall hear about the change in my verse from Lupercal to Wadworth. Openness, that is what Hughes valued and worked towards. Openness to whatever was out there, whether light or dark or material or mythical. The claim he put forward right from the start in various letters and essays was that mainstream poetry had closed itself off had sealed itself in, and his ambition was by means of melody to open it. That's why many years later, he said of the Crow poems, there were times when I really felt my bones open. And the best footnote to that remark is Rilke's eighth Duino elegy. With all their eyes, all creatures see the open. Only our eyes are turned around and surround it with pitfalls all round the way to be free. What is outside, we know from animal eyes alone, since even the youngest child we turn round, force it backwards to see conformity, not the openness that's so deep in an animal's face, free from death, which is what only we see. The free animal has its perishing always behind it and God in front, and when it moves, it moves in eternity the way springs run. We never not even one single day, have pure space in front of us into which the flowers endlessly arise. Always it is world and never nothing without no. The pure, unsupervised, that one breathes and endlessly 
knows and craves nothing. The pure unsupervised perfectly describes the character of hawk roosting. On the one hand, it is a lyric autobiographic poem, even as Simon Armitage points out, a meta poem about the art of writing. On the other hand, it is so much more than that. It is an opening of the very bones of the mind, a pouring in of darkness, a transformation of the eye pupil so that it can unsupervisedly inspect pure space. If you miss the scale of that, then poetry shrinks by a third. Poetry is after all a threefold practice, including the lyric, the dramatic and the epic. It has reached the moment when I need to explain what I mean by epic, because I don't mean a narrative poem in heroic hexameter. That was Aristotle's definition made more than 2000 years ago. And although, although it worked at the time, I think it conceals some of the livelier meanings of the word, and in so doing, it makes epic unavailable or even invisible to contemporary writers. My aim in these Oxford lectures is to refresh the word epic and find it still working in later so-called lyric poetry. Sometimes epic is no more than a whiff of darkness, a shiver of not knowing that passes under the surface of a poem. But if you miss its movement, then you're left with only small, personal, sealed up poetry, poetry of what has been rather than what might be. So in my first lecture, I asked you to attend to something moving through Robert Herrick's verse, not the words themselves, but the alterations happening behind them. Epic as duration, epic as erosion. In my second lecture, I defined simile as resemblance that allows difference, and I defined epic as an art of simile, an art of multiple sympathies. Neither of those has anything to do with Aristotle's demand that epic should contain noble characters, appropriate diction, logical plot, and impersonal tone. But Aristotle was simply itemizing what he admired about Homer. Aristotle, the great classifier, read Homer as a grand and principled poet. I read Homer differently. Why shouldn't epic mean an art of lines? That is, after all, closer to what Homer meant when he used the word epea, which is normally translated as words, but I believe it means lines or phrases. Whenever I open some new version of the Odyssey and read that a character spoke and uttered winged words, I see a flutter of letters floating out of a mouth, a kind of torn up typescript. And it reminds me that the boundaries between words are hard to distinguish unless they are written down. In spoken language, and for hundreds of years, the Homeric poems were only ever spoken. It is whole phrases we hear, each phrase in a silhouette of pause. So she spoke and uttered winged phrases. If I read that, I see a surge of living sound, an arrow or insect with its line of flight unfolding. A word is always followed by another word. A phrase is always followed by a pause. And by means of the pause, the language has space to fly out and come back again. That, to me, is what epic means. It is an art of phrases, winged phrases, whose flight is about as long as a line. Milman Parry, in his research into oral composition, was the first to notice its tendency to think in lines. He said that the easiest formula for the oral poet to master is that which is both a whole sentence and a whole verse. 
His claim has been modified by observations about runover lines, but these are not Miltonic runovers. Homer shunts his phrases forward, one after another after another. Like any practiced percussionist, he can sometimes split rhythm, but the fact remains that he thinks like grow in intonation units, and between each unit, there is a negative space in which the poem breathes, the focus shifts, the bones fly open. I don't know how to communicate the thrill of reading that kind of poem, being carried bumpily over the musical shifts, always looking ahead into the not yet spoken line, like one of Rilke's animals with all its perishing behind it and God in front. It is like being offered the blackbird's privilege, seeing the world not in words, but in waves or lines and allowing each line its surrounding silence. That is what I mean by epic. And under my definition, Paradise Lost is a lyric poem because of its causeless continuity. It ushers you into its closed space. It moves behind its sound barrier. Crow, on the other hand, at every breath turn, propels you beyond the voice, beyond the mind, out into pure, unsupervised space. He sang how the swan blanched forever, how the wolf threw away its telltale heart and the stars dropped their potence. The air gave up appearances, water went deliberately numb, the rock surrendered its last hope and cold died beyond knowledge. He sang how everything had nothing more to lose, then sat still with fear, seeing the claw track of star, hearing the wing beat of rock and his own singing. Hughes never read Homer in the original, but his devotion to oral poetry, deepened by his study of anthropology, gave him a taste for the owl's way of singing, or the blackbirds, or the crows, call it what you will, the one who sings and then sits still with fear, hearing the wingbeat of rock and his own singing. Although the crow cycle contains hints of a mythical connective system, a mistreated female, an exhausted creator, an over-rational protagonist and a trickster, there is an equally powerful system of disconnections at work in the melody. At every line end, the reader is dropped into pure chords in which the presence of Crow can be felt clueless, dark and actual, like the embodiment of a full stop. Black was the without eye, black the within tongue, black is the earth globe, one inch under, an egg of blackness where sun and moon alternate their weathers to hatch a crow, a black rainbow bent in emptiness over emptiness, but flying. <laughs> I was in Bristol crossing a road the other day and I bumped into someone who was setting off for the Caucasus to look for nomadic musicians. In the middle of a pandemic, he had decided 
to take a flight across emptiness towards wilderness. As he headed off, he gave a theatrical world shedding sh shrug and said, nobody knows anything anymore. Nobody has any clue what's going on. It's true, we have come to a line end and we are now inside the pause. There used to be rules for such times. You can find them in Fraser's Golden Bow. During an eclipse, you must stop what you're doing and bang pots and pans. If you are pregnant or frail, you should stay inside. If it's a lunar eclipse, you should bury lighted brands in the earth. In a solar eclipse, you must tuck up your robes as if for traveling and then leaning on long staves as if heavy laden, keep walking in a circle until the eclipse is over. You should shoot fire-tipped arrows into the air. There will be deep, basic panic. You have crossed the horizon of your knowledge. The void moves to meet you. The eternal bat is gnawing the sun or moon. Keep walking. If only someone might offer that kind of advice. At the moment in this unsettling cause, what I need from poetry is neither lament nor opinion, but a crow-like courage to be baffled by events and yet keep walking. He comes forward a step and a step and a step. During the bleak years after his wife's first suicide, after his first wife's suicide, Hughes began to notice that the poetry coming out of Eastern Europe had more of that kind of courage, a truer sense of absurdity and a bolder willingness to face it than anything being written in the English. With his friend, Daniel Weisbord, he established a magazine of poetry and translation. And in connection with that project, he set to work making translations of the Hungarian poet, Janos Belinsky. Translation has always been a way of restarting poetry. Chaucer, Wyatt, Dryden, Milton, Hopkins, Pound, each of them changed the sound of English verse by means of translation. Those poets were primarily interested in discovering new verse forms. Hughes did something different. In his Belinsky poems, inspired by the spareness of the originals, which Belinsky himself characterized as a sort of lack of language, he seems to have wanted to make translations of translation itself, foregrounding its literalness, its simple line-by-line -line accuracy. Hughes spoke no Hungarian and relied on cribs by Janos Sockets, some of which he barely changed before publication. If you can't like the literal crib of a Belinsky poem, he said, and it seems to me he's one poet you'd better leave unliked. Inevitably, that literalness, urgent, defiant, unpolished, began to affect the writing of Crow. You might describe that book as a line-by-line -line crib of a line-by-line -line crib. But further in and deeper down, there was an even stranger translation project. Hughes had been working with Peter Brook on a version of Seneca's Oedipus, learning to make an abbreviated action-packed language that would work on stage. He finished the play in October, 1968. By November, Peter Brook was asking for a translation of King Lear. He needed the language to be strict to its bone for a film script. Most writers would refuse such a blasphemous idea. Hughes set to work. He struggled for a couple of months, getting rid of what he called the carrier wave of the language. Then he had a dream in which Shakespeare turned up at his house. There was a tremendous banging on the back door, 
and when he opened it, there was Shakespeare himself, jewels, ruffs, and the rest of it, boiling with rage about his tinkering with King Lear. Shakespeare led Hughes upstairs, and then, in the enormous space in the top of the house, put on his own performance as it should be put on, according to him. It was immense, filling the whole sky. So Hughes apparently abandoned that translation and Peter Brook used his own edited script of Shakespeare. The film came out in 1971, Crow was first published in 1970. Both these works are masterpieces in black and white, studies of darkness and survival. Who knows which way the influences ran. The opening scenes of Brook's film, the freeze of faces, and then Lear with his back to the camera in a tattered coat of what looked like feathers, those feel like translations of hawk roosting. And Hughes had a clear sense, even when writing that poem, of the connection between the hawk and Horus, and Horus and King Lear. But the instructions Brooke sent to Hughes for making the translation, those sound like instructions for writing Crow. The problem of filming Shakespeare, he said, is how you can change gears, styles, and conclusions as lightly and deftly as the mental process inside a person. He asked Hughes to translate Lear as if it had been written in a foreign language, to render it not into a 1969 idiom, but into a language that suited the contemporary needs of poetic expression. Needless to say, Hughes was absolutely clear and said it over and over again, that Lear was the high priest of a crow god. And here and there in the life and songs of crow, flashes of a translated, abbreviated, universal King Lear crib can be heard who begat God, who begat nothing, who begat never, 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 who begat Crow. Perhaps not unlike the open air performance which Shakespeare staged in his dream. It used to be said that poetry is what gets lost in translation. It isn't possible to say that anymore, in large measure because of Crow. If it's true that the Crow melody was partly inspired by East European poetry and partly by the line units of its translations, then Crow was not lost but found in translation. And partly because of Crow, the values of translation, such values as simple, helpless accuracy, have become enshrined as the foremost values of contemporary poetry. All those needs which Hughes articulated in his introduction to modern poetry and translation the need to communicate, to exchange dreams and revelations and brainwaves, to find a shared humanity on the level of the heart, have borne fruit in various contemporary anthologies of translated verse, of which my favorite is the Echo Anthology of International Poetry. John Ashbury said it becomes immediately indispensable, and I agree. Kaminsky, one of the editors, himself a first-rate poet in two languages with occasional glosses in sign language, speaks in terms similar to Hughes of the correspondences that allow poets to be in dialogue across the world. The universal poetic language has become an actuality and right now, what could be more needed? I read this book over and over and I find in it many crow-like qualities, accuracy, urgency, emergency, violence, humor. This is poetry with no megaphone, but I think it is also fair to say that it is poetry with no silence. If by silence you mean not just a line break, but a line break meticulously approached by a phrase whose final note is silence. When the eagle soared clear through a dawn distilling of emerald, 
when the curlew trawled in sea dusk through a chime of wine glasses. There are plenty of other kinds of silence, the conceptual silence, which is part of what a poem means, and the convenient silence, which divides one thought from another. But it is a fundamental fact of translation that there is no melodic silence corresponding to the original sentence form, the one forced upon the poet by nature itself. Perhaps it is not poetry which gets lost in translation, but silence. And in place of silence, there comes a taste for knowingness. Fiona Sampson, a brilliant translator of Jan Kaplinski, has remarked that poems translate well when they make interesting connections, that movements of thought and successions of ideas are what come across in translation. He's right, of course, if a poem is undisturbed, if its ideas are deft and self-sufficient, it will communicate well in another language. But what about poems which make interesting disconnections? What about thought ruptured by astonishment, knowledge limited by mystery? What about discontinuities rather than successions? And what about epic? If epic means not a narrative poem in hexameter, but a broken melody, a kind of King Lear looped and ragged melody through which something beyond the human finds expression. We should now have a recording of how water began to play, taken from the 92Y recordings done in 1971, I think. Water wanted to live. It went to the sun. It came weeping back. Water wanted to live. It went to the trees. They burned. It came weeping back. They rotted. It came weeping back. Water wanted to live. It went to the flowers. They crumpled. It came weeping back. It wanted to live. It went to the womb. It met blood. It came weeping back. It went to the womb. It met knife. It came weeping back. It went to the womb. It met maggot and rottenness. It came weeping back. It wanted to die. It went to time. It went through the stone door. It came weeping back. It went searching through all space for nothingness. It came weeping back. It wanted to die. Till it had no weeping left. It lay at the bottom of all things. Utterly worn out. Utterly clear. Thank you. The melody of Crow, the melody which, as Hughes said, controlled the selection of the words, is a looped and ragged one. The very title of the book, From the Life and Songs of the Crow, announces its claims as fragmentary. These poems are excerpts from some still unfinished life, and Hughes himself referred to them as defragmented and not the most important part. In readings, Hughes used to offer improvised episodes of a larger story to frame the crow poems. God had a nightmare which became crow, 
Crow interfered with the creation of the world. Crow began to change as he heard the songs of other creatures. These prose narratives, always slightly different from one performance to the next, lead Crow towards a transformation. And the poem we've just heard marks the moment when he will become more human than bird. Here he is carrying a woman across a river. She gets heavier and heavier. Seven times the water rises to Crow's neck and he becomes unable to move. Seven times he is asked an unanswerable question about the nature of love. Who came off worse, the male or the female? What was it, animal or bird? Who took most pleasure? By means of these Tiresias riddles, the poem tries to turn, tries to lift from its bleakness. Crow inches across the water, offering poems as half answers, and is then given a set of magical songs to help him emerge from the underworld. If Hughes had been Dante, considering the nature of love by means of perfect rhyming pentameters, then the Crow poems might have kept ascending through purgatory into paradise. That was indeed Hughes's wish. But something about the Crow melody, and perhaps the melody grew out of his state of mind in the 1960s, blocked him from making this larger redemptive poem. He went on working at Crow throughout his life, filling his notebooks with complicated stories, strange scraps of alchemy and dreams that never made it into the published book. But the full Dantean epic proved impossible for him in that form at that time. One reason might be that his poetic creed pulled into opposing directions. He labored towards an epic voice, a voice that was more than his own. But at the same time, he wrote in letters and essays against what he calls the atonal voicelessness of most verse now. And, but it is speech, the whole mind moving together. And I look at things in a completely moralizing and stylized way. I think straight to the thing. Those are lyric creeds. The truth is that poetry is the language of betweenness. Poetry needs to be neither one thing nor another. Lyric must have epic stitched into it, and epic must have patches of tragedy, and tragedy needs to break into lyric, and lyric must sometimes fall face forwards into comedy. I began this lecture with a burst of blackbird song, and I have wandered among crows and other birds trying to hear what happens when poets think with phrases and causes rather than with words and then more words. My idea has been that epic leaves openings in its language through which the speaker can hear the next line flying in from elsewhere, whereas lyric speaks over its openings and only hears itself. It seems appropriate to end that argument with a pause and then say something altogether different. So I am going to leave you with a nightingale the most lyrical and lamenting of birds, whom Homer towards the end of the Odyssey suddenly imitates. It is Penelope, in another epic about the nature of love, speaking to Odysseus, not yet knowing who he is. Gregory Nage, in his analysis of the passage, makes much of the word troposa, which means turning. He claims this is a technical word for the way poets turn the material as they composed, joining their lyric repertoire to their epic by a kind of inspired stitching called Rhapsody. So here is Penelope's Rhapsody, which I shall introduce with a flourish of nightingale, recorded by my brother in the spring while he was locked down in the mountains outside Madrid. Over three nights, I received this quiet nightingale over WhatsApp, and the last one had a note underneath it. Can you hear the darkness under all the racket the stream is making? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. 
and I can hear the same darkness under Penelope's lines. Listen, stranger, let me ask you one question. Soon it will be that longed-for hour when sleep claims each human in spite of his suffering. But for me, my fate is permanent lament. All day, giving in to my anguish and weeping, I attend to my tasks, servants in this house. But when night comes and deep sleep claims them all, as soon as I lie down, my heart can feel a thousand sharp objects and I start grieving again the daughter of Pandarus, a pale green singer. As soon as spring comes, she sings pure precisions, sitting there in the leafy thickness of the trees, turning this way and that, pours out her varying voice, lamenting her son, her darling Italus. He, with a knife in sheer madness, murdered him, the true son of her husband. I too, my heart has two strains, turning this way and that. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to welcome Ros back. Hello, Ros. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Alice. Um, it was fantastic and absolutely gripping lecture. Um, as always, it, the kind of the impulse is to want, as I could hear you saying, there's a kind of impulse to want to pause. Um, and that would be entirely appropriate. <laughs> unfortunately, the lecture structure sort of requires um, a, a kind of return, which sometimes is, is uncomfortable uh, when people are still trying to reflect. Um, we, we have some um, enthusiastic responses that I should pass on to straight away. One viewer said, thank you for another fantastic lecture. Another one says, you dramatically transform my perception of lyric, lyric and epic poetry. I'm really delighted how poetry flows uh, from you ceaselessly connecting generations of poetry from Homer to today's poetry. Um, um, I wondered actually if I could just start, I, I, I'm, I'm stuck on an, on an early phrase of yours when you talked about phrases outlined by pauses. And I wondered if, um, because I think I'm, I'm still sort of thinking through your ideas. And I, I wondered a bit if you, if you could talk a bit more about that word outlined, because it seemed to me there's something about uh, in your lecture about a tension between the oral and the written, between the black and white on the page and that black and white line and the sequential sound of, of poetry melody is that sense. Uh, my dictionary tells me melody is, is, is simply a sequence of single notes which form apparently a satisfying experience which might not be the way that we think about the crow or the blackbird um so it's that word outlined it, it's i suppose I'm, what i'm asking is is this partly about an attempt to go beyond the line 
um, or, or do you still want to make a case for, for the line as a kind of, if you like, a sort of harnessing? Um, um, I think that it's particularly notable in so-called free verse, which is not free at all, uh, that with a poet particularly like Hughes, the constraint he imposes is, is where the phrase ends. So he makes it very simple, particularly in the Crow poems, that he tends to end his phrases at the line. I think it's quite possible to um, bring out that pause at the end of a phrase in a different way, but um, there is an incredible difference between what formal verse is doing where it's kind of syncopating the phrase end and the meter. I, I, I think that what I'm trying to draw attention to is that when free verse continues to syncopate but there isn't a meter, you just get a weakened song. And what I love about Hughes is that he just goes full throttle into the tune of the phrase and marks that by the line end. Does that answer your question? Yes. You're yes. also pointing out my shifting from sound to sight, which I, which you're correct to point out. I, I see a shape of a phrase kind of outlined as if it were a picture, but what I really mean is, is, is a phrase with a pause on either side of it. Okay. Does that answer? It does, it does, yes, yes, it's very, it's very helpful. Um, so um, one of our, perhaps an easier, well, an easy question to, to help us ease into more of a discussion, uh, and one that's just come in is, could you comment on how your poem Slowed Down Blackbird came to be? So I think they're thinking about. Um, well, that was another uh, transcription of Blackbird song Slowed Down, which I heard when I was in Devon, um, which some uh, composer called Hugh Nankerville played to me. I think a lot of composers are interested in trying to articulate uh, bird song in a slower form because when you slow birds down, you just hear these incredibly beautiful tunes. So that was a poem that was a response to that. And it was also just a, a thought about the sort of desolate time in winter when the blackbird can't quite manage that amazing spring song. So it was a combination of those two things. Okay. And this question, I'm going to just read it and see if, if we can pass it ourselves. It says, it came in early, if melody is the only law of crow, how can the crow reflect thoughts of the poet in contrast to the organised poetic syntax of Milton, which theoretically conveys thoughts of the poet in a clearer way? I might have to have that again. <laughs> if melody is the only law of crow, how can the crow reflect thoughts of the poet in contrast to the organized poetic syntax of Milton, which theoretically conveys thoughts of the poet in a clearer way? I mean, I think partly- yes, That feels yeah. like that's a question about, um, about the, what I think is that the verse form Hughes uses allows him to open himself to thought that's not his own, whereas Milton, by using such a kind of constructed verse form is transmitting his own thought. Uh, although I hesitate, so I'm sure there are a lot of Milton experts who will tell me that's wrong. But I think that mm. there, that kind of, that idea, that word openness that Hope Hughes used and that he kind of tracked the change in his own poetry from closed to open. Mm. To me, that is about accessing thought or revelation or whatever it is that lies beyond your own mind. And I think that's that's what I, I sort of find so thrilling about Hughes. 
Thank you. Um, someone asks us, how should we read the pauses and silences that you talk about? How do we make the meaning out of the gaps between fragments? And should we try at all? Um, I, I think it's quite nice to do a little bump with your foot. Um, and if you physicalize it in that way, then you stop kind of being anxious about being clever about a pause. And I think it is, you know, I think Crow really is a kind of, it's a darkness. It's like a sort of blackout. If you allow, allow your mind just to turn around and, and go into nothingness. I think quite interesting as well is that little quote from Peter Brook writing to Hughes about how he wanted the language to be. And I know that, um, that actors get out of Shakespeare this kind of, this thing that between the pauses, you, you can kind of turn your whole mind around. You, you know, the, the language, you can come to a completely new decision. So I think Peter Brook talked about the deft, I can't remember the words now, but, it, but how agile those shifts of a person's mind moving are. And I think something of that perhaps is in Hughes's language, that, that ability to be saying one thing and then turn and say something completely different so that the language is always growing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this last question, I think it's something that lots of people will have been thinking about, and certainly I was thinking about as you were talking, which is whether you have, you just mentioned the darkness of the crow. Do you have anything to add about the darkness of the crow? If we think about melody as its underlying logic, what then do we make of how upsetting or disturbing it can be? That's the crow, how upsetting the crow can be. Well, I mean, Hughes was kind of pretty devastated that he took crow, as he said, to its the lowest point and, and couldn't, couldn't kind of rescue him. Um, for various reasons, he stopped writing the poem. He did actually carry on, you know, right to the end. He was, the British Library is full of his, his notes for how he wanted to carry on the poem. I wonder whether, you know, because melodies do kind of dictate what you can do with a poem, they, they block you. If it's not the right melody, you can't move in a certain direction. And the amazing kind of simple clarity that those crow poems achieve maybe couldn't do the next thing of the sort of rather wrought kind of resurrection that, that he hoped for. Um, but I don't know, that, that's a mystery I think that we have to leave unsolved. I mean, it's one of the, I think it's one of the most helpful things about your definition of epic and its openness is that sort of sense that we know that the history of poetry is littered with poets who did not complete their epics, but that unfinishedness and openness is, is how you're defining the epic rather than the kind of thing that you can yeah. and, and I think it happens on two levels. It's both open and unfinished because in each performance, Hughes would give a bit more of the story and he changed the story. So it, to that extent, it is a performance piece, uh, but it's also open and unfinished in a literary way in that he couldn't create a kind of redemptive part of the poem. Although I actually think those the little cluster of poems at the end that were part of the magical songs that Crow was given, you know, you don't really need any more than that. They're just so simple and so light and healing that I think you didn't really need to go any further. How am I doing? Um, I haven't got very much more time. I just want to ask this question. Um, you gave us a very helpful summary about two thirds of the way through of your other lectures and the the art of erosion, the poems of reflection, and how they connect to the epic. This question says, is there any connection between the poems written in the art of erosion and the poems of reflection? So thinking uh, of your other lectures. 
Um, well, I suppose the connection is only the connection it makes in my own head that those are poems that I, I'm, I'm endlessly, I think, looking for that, that quality, that whiff of darkness or shiver of not knowing. Uh, and I kind of track it in poems that might not seem to be that. So I'm sort of very interested in, in finding epic where you wouldn't normally expect it to be. So, so the connection is probably only in my own mind, but, but yes, I think it's that, that openness. Um, I think there is an openness in Herrick uh, and in Dunn, I was more actually contrasting Dunn to the way Homer has this kind of multiple, um, these multiple sympathies, whereas Dunn is kind of, by his form, he's kind of constrained into being one person. Um, and this, I think this may need to be our last question in terms of time, and it may, maybe it's an appropriate place to finish sort of where we started, which is how do you feel about your own work in relation to Hughes? What are the places where you feel you align and where do your intents differ? Where do you differ? I think I've learned a lot from the sort of technicalities of Hughes, how he, how he makes his tunes. Um, I, I feel he's just, you know, three verse poet that really has an incredible music. And, and so I've been always very excited by that. Um, and I suppose also the feeling that a modern or contemporary poet could, could lay themselves that open because uh, I think it, it is more fashionable to be kind of safe and rational, but the way Hughes kind of exposed himself to everything um, is a good start, I think. Uh, and yeah. different differences, or do you not want to uh, open up that space? <laughs> definitely differences, probably for other people to point out um, rather than me. I mean, you know, there is the simple difference of gender, which I, I think is, you know, it is there and it and I think that I don't really know how women sense things differently from men uh, and I wouldn't want to constrain what we can do in any way but I, I sense that there is a difference and I think we perhaps we haven't been at it long enough we've got much to discover maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask one last because I feel like this scholar should have this answer if you have it. And you gave us a, a wonderful section about translation and made a, a really convincing case about the role of translation in contemporary poetry. And there's just one question that this person really needs answered, which is which translation of Rilke that is that you're using? Uh, which translation of Rilke? Oh, golly, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to email that person. I haven't written it down and I can't now remember it's from my book upstairs, but it would take me a long time to go and find it. <laughs> Not required. We'll, we'll so, sorry about that. Send an email address to us at Torch and we'll get that answer to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Alice. That was an absolutely, um, really just a, a lecture that, as always, was so full of directions. Um, and one thing I would also mention is that Zoom appears to have had its own investment in introducing pauses into your speech. So the fact that you delivered it with such, um, or YouTube, with such kind of care and precision meant that we could carry on with your lines, even when technology was, was breaking you up, uh, for which we, I'm really grateful. Um, so, Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank as well everyone else who's involved um, tonight in making this possible, including the team at Torch and the English faculty. 
Thanks so much to everyone who has watched us at home and sending in your comments and your questions. Um, the audio of Alice's lectures and the audio of lectures by the past two incumbents of this uh, post, the Professor Perchie, are freely available to the public on the Oxford English Faculty website, and this lecture will join them there soon. So you can listen to it again um, and pass it again um, through your own thoughts. Um, and um, I think there I will uh, sign us off um, with many thanks, Alice, um, and we look forward to hearing from you um, again soon. Thank you very much.